Well, friends, would you turn with me to the words that we read in Nehemiah chapters 12 and 13? Nehemiah chapter 12 from verse 27 to chapter 13, verse 3. Reading again verses 27 to 30 of chapter 12. Where we read, and at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings and with singing, with cymbals, harps and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the districts surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Netophathites, also from Beth Gilgal and from the region of Geba and Asmaveth. For the singers had built for themselves villages round Jerusalem. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves and they purified the people and the gates, and the wall. I once heard an older Christian speaking about a sermon series that his minister had recently done on the book of Nehemiah, and he remarked, I feel like we've built these walls ourselves. He clearly wasn't a fan of the book of Nehemiah, nor was he a particular fan of that sermon series on Nehemiah. Well, I hope that you've not felt that way as we've gone through this book together since uh, February or March. But tonight we are coming to the second last sermon in our series on this book. And next week we'll look at the aftermath and see whether or not they lived happily ever after. And it's lovely to see uh, Roddy McLeod and the family with us this evening. And hopefully the next time you're with us, we will be out of Nehemiah, in case you think that's all that we preach on uh, in this congregation. So next week it is going to be uh, the last uh, sermon series, the last sermon of this series. But tonight we're going to be looking at this dedication service as the people come together following the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem and also their recommitment to the Lord and his word. And we're looking at these verses under three headings. We're looking at the procession and then the provision and finally the purification. First we have the procession. Look at chapter 12 verses 27 to 43. Here Nehemiah focuses on the procession of the people. Nehemiah begins by drawing our attention to the assembly in verses 27 to 30. We can start by noting when the assembly took place. Back in chapter 1, Nehemiah received a report about the broken walls and the burnt gates of the city of Jerusalem. By chapter 6, Nehemiah had led the people in rebuilding the wall and rebuilding the gates in a period of only 52 days. By chapter 11, Nehemiah had organized the repopulation of the city by a tenth of the nation's population. And now the time has come for the wall of this holy city, as it is described in chapter 12, to be dedicated to the Lord. That's the when. We can continue by noting who assembled. We have the Levites. And these Levites are brought from all the places, the districts surrounding Jerusalem, the villages of the Netophathites and Beth Gilgal, and the region of Geba and Asmaveth. We can also note where they assembled. We need that they were brought to Jerusalem. The purpose of this assembly is to dedicate the walls and the gates of the city of Jerusalem, and therefore it is essential that they assemble in Jerusalem for this task. And we can note what they did at the outset. The priests and the Levites start off by purifying themselves. They go on and they purify the people. 
And they conclude by purifying the gates and the wall. They saw the importance of ritual cleanliness, purity in the sight of a holy, holy, holy God. And so they offer sacrifices and they sprinkle the cleansing blood of these sacrifices on the religious leaders, then on the people themselves, and finally on the gates and the wall. Nehemiah moves us from the assembly to the procession in verses 31 to 43. A choir is appointed and led by Ezra in verses 31 to 37. This group consisted of Hoshea, half the leaders of Judah, Azariah, Ezra, Meshulam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, Jeremiah, Zechariah, Shemaiah, Azarel, Melali, Gilali, Ma'ai, Nethanel, Judah and Hanani. And they proceed to walk in a southerly direction along the wall of the city, passing landmarks such as the Dung Gate, the Fountain Gate, and the Water Gate, those gates that they had been involved in building in the earlier chapters of this book. A second group is then appointed and led by Nehemiah in verses 38 and 39. This group consists of the other half of the people who had assembled at the wall. They proceed to walk in a northerly direction along the wall of the city, passing landmarks such as the Tower of Ovens, the Broad Wall, the Gate of Ephraim, the Gate of Yoshana, the Fish Gate, the Tower of Hananel, the Tower of the Hundred, the Sheep Gate and the Gate of the Guard. And these two groups meet at the temple. They meet at the house of God, as you see in verses 40 to 43. They've been going in opposite directions, one group going north, one group going south, all along these walls, and they meet at the central key location. Nehemiah highlights that he went into the temple with half of the officials and the priests Eliakim, Messiah, Miniamin, Micaiah, Elioni, Zechariah, Hananiah, Messiah, Shemaiah, Eleazar, Uzi, Jehoanan, Malkijah, Elam and Ezer. And as they stand in the temple of Jerusalem, the professional singers are led in song by this man Jezrahiah. They then offer great sacrifices, these thanksgiving sacrifices in the temple, and the women and the children add their voices to this great rejoicing. And the joy is so great that we're told that it could be heard from far away. It's interesting to note one small but very significant detail that Nehemiah provides us with as he indicates that this was no ordinary joy. He writes that this was a rejoicing with great joy, with rejoicing they rejoiced. And that joy, that great joy, he says, had been given to them by God. God waited, made them rejoice. Well, friends, as we consider these verses, we're being shown the importance of joy in the lives of the Lord's people. The importance of joy in the lives of the Lord's people. That is what is really being brought out here in Nehemiah 12. We have this picture of a people rejoicing after their city has been rebuilt, after their temple has been restored, and after the people have been returned from exile in Babylon. It's such a great joy that it can be heard from far away, and it's a joy that has been given to them by God. It's not a man-made joy. It's not a manufactured joy. It is not a forced joy. It is a supernatural joy, a spontaneous joy, we might say a spiritual joy. And there's an important lesson for ourselves. It's a sad fact, but Christians can often be characterized as being gloomy, glasses half empty, 
killjoys, pessimistic people. Some of you have seen the Ricky Fulton, Reverend I Am Jolly sketch and what a miserable character he is. And some of you are smiling because you're, you, you have seen it, but you don't want to admit to have seen it. But you know the kind of picture that I'm presenting. And what's an even sadder fact is that there are some Christians who can contribute to that characterization. They never have anything positive to say, nothing productive to say, nothing pleasant to say. But you know, friends, while we cannot deny the reality that we are living in a world that has been invaded by sin, there is a sense in which Christians should be, they ought to be, a joyful people. If you're a Christian, you can rejoice that you have been loved by God, chosen by God before the ages began. If you're a Christian, you can rejoice that you have a saviour. You have a Jesus who has lived for you. He has died for you. He has risen for you. He has ascended for you. He is right now interceding and reigning for you. If you're a Christian, you can rejoice that you are no longer under condemnation, but rather you have peace with God. You have access into the presence of God before the throne of God. You are adopted into the very family of God. If you're a Christian, you can rejoice that you have a future hope, a home with Jesus who is going to come back and take you to be with him. Lachlan Mackenzie was a minister in Loch Carran in the 18th century and he wrote about the happy man. Listen to what he says. I know the language is a bit antiquated, but, but it does capture something. He writes... The happy man was born in the city of regeneration, in the parish of repentance unto life. He was educated at the school of obedience, has a large estate in the country of Christian contentment, and many times does jobs of self-denial, wears the garment of humility, and has another suit to put on when he goes to court called the robe of Christ's righteousness. He often walks in the valley of self-abasement, and sometimes climbs the mountains of heavenly-mindedness. He breakfasts every morning on spiritual prayer, sups every evening on the same. He has meat to eat that the world knows not of, and his drink is the sincere milk of the word of God. Thus happy he lives and happy he dies. Happy is he who has gospel submission in his will, due order in his affections, sound peace in his conscience, real divinity in his breast, the Redeemer's yoke on his neck, a vain world under his feet, and a crown of glory over his head." Happy is the life of that man who believes firmly, prays fervently, walks patiently, works abundantly, lives holy, dies daily, watches his heart, guides his senses, redeems his time, loves Christ and longs for glory. He is necessitated to take the world on his way to heaven, but he walks through it as fast as he can. And all his business, by the way, is to make himself and others happy. Take him in Take him all in, in two words, he is a man and he is a Christian. Can I ask you tonight, friend, are you a happy man? Are you a happy woman? Are you a joyful man, a joyful woman? Do you have this God-given, gospel-saturated, Jesus-centered joy that can be seen? that can be heard. Perhaps you're here tonight and you're not a Christian. You've never known this joy. Well, you ask the Lord to open your eyes and open your heart that you might see and 
receive this joy for the, the very first time. Or perhaps you're here tonight and you are a Christian, but you've lost something of that Christian joy. There was once a time that you were full of the joys about coming to worship the Lord with his people, but it's not there anymore. Will you ask the Lord to open your eyes and to open your heart to see and receive that joy afresh? So there's the procession, this joyful procession. But we move from the procession to the provision. Look at chapter 12, verses 44 to 47, where Nehemiah focuses on the provision of the people. The provision of the people. Verses 44 to 46, Nehemiah draws their attention to the appointments. We have the appointment of men over the storerooms in verses 44 and 45. We've seen in our studies that there was this expectation that the people would make contributions for the priests, for the Levites, for the religious leaders. And now we read that Levites were appointed to look after the storerooms where the people would bring their contributions, their first fruits, and the tithes from their fields. And then we have the appointment of singers and gatekeepers, verses 45 and 46. And throughout Nehemiah chapters 11 and 12, there is this great emphasis on singers and gatekeepers. And once again, we see that singers and gatekeepers were appointed according to the command of David and Solomon. And Nehemiah adds, it's a lovely little detail, he adds that long ago, in the days of David and his praise leader Asaph, there were directors of singers and songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. Nehemiah is making this point that what is going on, what is taking place, isn't new. It isn't innovative. Rather, he's saying that it's this continuation of what had always happened. The years of exile had had a tremendous impact on the people, a traumatic impact on the people. They were no longer under the rule of the Davidic kings. They were under the rule of the Persian kings. The economy was close to a full-blown recession. The temple that they had built a number of years earlier was far smaller, far less significant than Solomon's temple had been. The people themselves were fewer in number and many of them were jaded after all that had happened to them. They were more jaded than people are jaded after COVID and all that has happened over these last two years. But despite all this, the worship of the Lord was to continue in the same way that it had been commanded and conducted in the days of David and Solomon. And so men are appointed to lead in the praise. It's as if the Lord is saying through Nehemiah, don't put my worship on hold because things have been difficult. Don't put my worship on hold because life isn't easy. Worship me in the same way that you worship in the golden age of David and Solomon. And having drawn our attention to the appointments, Nehemiah draws our attention to the provision. Look at verse 47. There was provision for the Levites, beginning of verse 47. Nehemiah notes that in the days of Zerubbabel, 90 years earlier, the people gave daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers. And Nehemiah notes that that practice was continuing in his own day. And there was also provision for the priests. Look again at verse 47. The Levites would receive their portion from the people. And having received their portion from the people, they would set apart a portion 
of it for the sons of Aaron, for the priests. Now, friends, as we consider these verses, we've been shown the importance of expressing our appreciation for those who are in spiritual leadership. The importance of showing, expressing our appreciation for those who are in spiritual leadership. That is what we see here in Nehemiah 12. The people are providing portions for the priests and the Levites, those who are responsible for ministering God's word to them. And they do that, look at verse 44, because God's law commanded it. But they don't just do it because God's law commanded it. Look again at verse 44. They do it because they were rejoicing over the priests and Levites who were ministering to them. They were wanting to show their appreciation of them. Do you know that's an important lesson for ourselves again? There's an elder in Easter Ross who never holds back from showing his affection, his appreciation for those who are ministering God's word to him. And when I was preaching in this congregation a few weeks ago, he came up to me at the end of the service and COVID or no COVID, he gave me one of these bear hugs that only an Easter Ross man can give. And he said, Hugh, I love you, brother in the Lord. And it was such a blessing. It was such an encouragement for myself. But it's not just preachers of the word who need encouragement. Elders, shepherds of the word, the church's spiritual leadership need encouragement. Biblically qualified elders are the Lord's gift to his church. Ligon Duncan writes... God knows that growth in grace needs all of the mutual help and accountability that we can possibly get. And therefore, he in his goodness appoints officers in the church who are there to edify us, there to encourage us, there to help us grow in grace. And when such elders are faithfully fulfilling their duties, faithfully fulfilling their role as shepherds of the word, they ought to be commended for it. Can I ask you this evening, are you showing your appreciation for the shepherds of this congregation? Are you showing your appreciation for the spiritual leadership, the the elders of this congregation? They're not perfect. None of them would claim to be. If they start carrying on as if they're perfect, we should be worried. But are you showing your thankfulness for them and to them? I'm not asking you to go and buy them an expensive gift. I'm not asking you to take them for an expensive meal. Although if you want to, that's fine. And I'm sure they won't complain if you want to do that. But are you telling them that you're appreciating what they're doing? What they're attempting to do is they seek to shepherd this congregation with the word of God. Everyone needs encouragement. David Morrison He's not here this evening, so I can pick on him, but he sent a message in the men's group chat uh, this afternoon, and he, he basically said that. He said, everyone needs encouragement. Even elders. Even elders. So there's the provision. Third and finally, we have the purification. Look at chapter 13, verses 1 to 3. And here Nehemiah focuses on the purification of the people. Verses 1 and 2, Nehemiah draws their attention to the announcement. 
We're told that the people read from God's word at the beginning of verse 1. They're, they're in this process of dedicating the walls of Jerusalem and it's only natural that they would take out the word of God and on this occasion they take out the book of Moses and they read it in the hearing of all the people. We're also told what God's word required. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. They come to Deuteronomy 23 with its laws on who is to be excluded from the assembly of God's people and they read about the requirement that the Ammonites and Moabites be excluded. These two groups had been radically opposed to the Lord's people as they made the journey from Egypt through the wilderness to the promised land. They refused to meet the people of Israel with bread or water on their journey. Instead, they hired this false prophet Balaam and they hired him in order that he might curse the people of God. However, the curses of Balaam, we read, proved to be no match for the God who is sovereign. And he turned those curses into blessings. This is the God, friends, who is sovereign. This is the God who brought good out of all the evil, all the harm that Joseph's brothers intended for him back in Genesis 50. This is the God who brought salvation out of the plots and the conspiracies of the Jews and the Romans, as we see in Acts chapter 4. This is the God who brought blessing out of the curses of Balaam, as we see here in Nehemiah chapter 13. This is the God who is sovereign, and nothing and no one can hinder him. Nothing and no one can thwart him. Boris Johnson can't. Nicholas Sturgeon can't. Moabites and Ammonites can't. This is the God who is absolutely sovereign and can bring blessing out of the most dreadful of circumstances. But that didn't mean that the Moabites and Ammonites could be just let off for what they had done. And so Nehemiah moves their attention from the announcement to the practice. Look at verse 3. The people have just heard from God's word. They've heard about the harm that the Moabites intended for them, the harm that the Ammonites intended for them. They've also heard about the law forbidding the Moabites and Ammonites from having a place in their assembly, entering their assembly. And so having heard from the word of God, they put what they have just heard into practice. They don't waver. They don't deliberate. They don't set up a committee to see what they should do next. They have heard what God's word clearly said, categorically said, concisely said, and they put it into practice by separating themselves from all those of foreign descent. Now, friends, as we consider these verses, we've been shown the importance of being distinct from the world, the importance of not losing, not diluting, not compromising our Christian identity. That is what we see here in Nehemiah chapter 13. The people look back at their history and they see the opposition of the Ammonites, the opposition of the Moabites toward the Lord and his people. And they read that the Lord had forbidden them from allowing such people to sit in their assemblies. And now at this new juncture in their history, they resolve to separate themselves from all those who refuse to identify themselves with the Lord and with his people. They see the necessity of being distinct from the world. The necessity of not losing, not diluting, not compromising their identity as the Lord's people. And you know, friends, that is a very important lesson for ourselves. As I've kept saying, I think I've said it every week now over this series, the aim of this series has been to encourage us 
as we attempt to regroup, as we attempt to rebuild, as we attempt to reach out to our community with the gospel after two years of lockdown and restrictions. And as we go about this task, friends, it is important and it is imperative that we maintain our Christian distinctiveness. That we don't lose. We don't dilute. We don't compromise our Christian identity. Over the last number of years, you've seen this, I've seen this. Many Christians, many churches, many denominations have, have just dismissed God's word. And they've, they've danced to the tune of the world. And, and yes, they've done it in the name of being relevant, being missional, not being a stumbling block, bringing people into the church. But you know, friends, you know this. It's not biblical. Jesus was very clear in telling his followers that they were to be salt in a bland world. And if they lost their saltiness, if they lost their distinctiveness, they would, they would be of no use. And he went on and he told them that they were to be lights in a dark world. And if they hid their light away, if they hid their distinctiveness away, again, they would be of no use. Sinclair Ferguson writes, I've sometimes heard Christians witness to people in these terms, you mustn't think being a Christian takes away your fun. I can enjoy the same things you do. Being a Christian isn't a series of don'ts. Much of this may be true. But why should the church be so concerned to tell the world that it is not really different from the world? The church then becomes both powerless and pointless. And he goes on to make this point. The regeneration of men's lives is a sovereign work of God's grace. We cannot bring anyone to newness of life. But it's our responsibility to live the new life in order that others might be challenged by it. It's our responsibility to shine for Jesus Christ so that others will see his salvation expressed in the flesh and blood reality of our lives. This evening, friends, I want to excite you. I want to enthuse you. I want to encourage you about regrouping, about rebuilding, about reaching out to our community with the gospel. We, we are not to be a holy huddle hiding away in the Sandwich Hall. We are not to be a holy huddle hiding away in the seminary. And we are not to be a private prayer club hiding away in the Falcha Centre. We are to be out and about. We are to be on mission. But friends, at the same time, we are to be uncompromising. We are to be unashamed. We are to be unyielding when it comes to our Christian identity, our Christian distinctiveness, as we go about this God-glorifying, Christ-exalting task. Friends, we are to be salt in a bland world. And isn't the world getting quite bland in some ways? We are to be lights in a dark world. And, and isn't the world quite a dark place? I, I meet so many people, Christian and non-Christian alike, and they're finding life 
so hard, so difficult right now. Wouldn't it be wonderful if people looked at the high free church Christians and said, well, they're really shining out. They're really standing out. They're a people who have, who have got something and we'd like to have what they have. Salt and light. This isn't a purification in Nehemiah chapter 13 where we are to hide away, but rather a purification that we might shine out all the more. Let's pray.